Our scripture reading today comes from Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. A mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put a man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon, the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Thank you, Rachel. Awesome. Well, good morning. Today, what I want to talk to you about is I want to talk to you about work. I want to talk to you about your jobs and your tasks and the things that you're responsible for Monday through Saturday. The things that God has given you to do. And there's a great verse in Colossians, because the Bible talks about our work all, all over the place. How relevant is the Bible? But it says in Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily as for Lord and not for men. Literally, God is telling us, man, when you work, work heartily, work for the Lord. But this is not always easy. Can I get an amen? I mean, work is hard. And it's not easy to work heartily to the Lord. I mean, no matter what God has put in, in front of us, it's not like it's just like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to go enjoy that. Work can be difficult, and we struggle. And if you're like me, you struggle with your work. You know what? I, I, I've even found in my life that I struggle with things that, uh, that I love to do. Sometimes the thing I love to do, I sometimes struggle to like. I mean, I don't want to get too vulnerable to you, and I love being a pastor and a preacher, but not every day is a walk in the park, you know what I mean? There are some days when the thing I love to do, I don't like. Now, I also am familiar with the idea of having a job you don't love at all, and I know that some of you, when you look at your job and your task and your week, and you're just like, if I could wave a magic wand, I would change the whole thing. I would change the whole way that my work and my task and my week goes. And I know that that can be really, really difficult. And sometimes we struggle with the people we work with. We might like our job, love our job, but then we got that person down. If I could just, oh, I would jack him up. Oh, you know what I mean? And you struggle in your heart, you know what I mean? And you want to beat people up and hit them in the nose. I have been there because I am short and I like hitting people. But anyways, <laughs> the issue is... Can I discover God-glorifying, soul-satisfying peace in whatever work I do? Is it possible that I can work heartily as for the Lord, no matter what the task might be? I might not find pleasure in every task. I might not enjoy every class. I might not like the fact that once upon a time I was a professional woman, but now I'm a male pastor. Wait a minute. Uh, I was once, you've been a professional woman, but now you're at home and changing diapers. Or you're, I know that it's not always easy to have pleasure, but can you have peace in your work? Now, we've been looking at Genesis. In Genesis chapter 2, where it begins to talk about the seventh day of creation, really deals relevantly and practically, surprisingly, 
with how we can have God-glorifying, soul-satisfying peace, no matter what task or job we have to do. And when we think about Genesis, this is why I love Genesis so much. You want to know why I love Genesis and why I love going through it? Because it deals with all of the foundational, foundational issues that I have to deal with every day. Every day, I have to decide whether I'm going to relate to the creator or culture is going to be my God. Every day, I got to decide how I'm going to be a worker, what kind of worker I'm going to be, what my attitude. Every day, I have my marriage, I have my Eve, and I got to decide what kind of husband I'm going to be. Every day, I got to decide if I'm going to murder my brother, if I'm not going to be my brother's keeper. You see, every day, I have to deal with the things that Genesis talks about. And when we come to Genesis 2, it talks about work, it talks about our employment. The first six days of creation we looked at last week in chapter 1. And then it comes to the seventh day of creation. And it talks about God and his work. And it talks about the rhythm of work and rest. And what I want you to see in Genesis is it tells us how we can have peace with our work. Number one, it tells us to have the right perspective about whatever work or task you have to face tomorrow or Tuesday or Wednesday, what Genesis proclaims uniquely in a very distinctive way, different than any other religion or philosophy of life, Genesis proclaims that all work that is given to human beings is sacred. Even the stuff you can't stand is sacred. Look at verse 2. Go to Genesis 2 and verse 2. Let me show you how I get this. It says here on the seventh day, On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. In verse 3, it brings up that same word again, work that he had done. That phrase, work that he had done, is used three times in those three verses, and therefore it's emphatic. Moses is being very emphatic about the way he's talking about God. And what's interesting, and the reason why I love the Bible and I love studying the Bible, is because the Hebrew word for work there is a word that was used for construction builders or ordinary labor that human beings do. In fact, the Hebrew word for work was used of the builders of the tabernacle and the poles and the, and the curtains and the tent and all those stuff, all those guys that were ditch digging and constructing and brick laying and all of those things, that's the kind of work that's being described when it says God finished his work. Very ordinary. Now listen, I'm telling you, we don't expect this. We don't expect Moses to talk like this. When Moses gets to the seventh day and he says, God created the heavens and the earth. And when he was finished with his work, we don't expect him to say finished with his ordinary labor, ordinary human type like work. We expect Moses to go Pentecostal on us, don't we? We expect him to go tent revival. To say when God had finished all his signs and wonders. You know what I mean? And like get Israel, like saying amen and rolling around throwing oranges that are Holy Ghost anointed. You know what I mean? (laughs) People laying out in the spirit and you know what I'm saying? And Moses doesn't, in fact, Moses disappoints us the way he talks about God. How dare God compare the creation of the heavens and the earth by ordinary work? How dare God compare God creating everything out of nothing to just ordinary Why would Moses do that? So then we watched the Ten Commandments the other night with my girls, you know, with Charlton Heston. Moses. Why? The reason why Moses talks like that is he wants us to think different than the rest of the world. He wants us to know that we are made in the image and the likeness of God. And that every task that God gives to you. No matter how mundane, no matter how ordinary, no matter how unspectacular to everybody else is a reflection of him. You are made in the image and likeness of God. You don't work to earn a living. You work to reflect the likeness of God. And guess what? Your ordinary work you got to do tomorrow, the stuff you don't like, the stuff you do like, the stuff you struggle with, the people you struggle with, the way you handle that reflects the glory of God. Because you see, God himself worked. When God created 
creation on Monday through Saturday or, or Sunday through, through Friday, when he did that, when he did that work, he was bending down and digging ditches. He was doing science and zoology. He was doing logistics. He was doing art. He was doing ordering and forming and building and making and, and creating things. And you know what? You do the same thing. And God even got his hands dirty. It says in Genesis 2, when it takes a closer look at the creation of Adam, it says that God, and Moses pictures God, of course, it's a picture, it's an illustration. God doesn't really, God is spirit. But it, it pictures God, he describes God as taking dirt out of the ground. And it's a picture of God bending down, getting his hands dirty, forming Adam. Every mom and dad knows what it's like to raise kids and how ordinary it feels when you're changing diapers, amen? But it's sacred. It reflects God because that's how God made us. He bent down. He reached down into the dirt and he created us and then he cleaned us up and he cleaned our diapers and he breathed into the nostrils of Adam, spirit and life. See, that's particular. God's saying, you know what? All the ancient mythology, all the other creation accounts, and there's a lot of them. Moses' creation account is not the only one. There's all kinds of other creation accounts. And what they say about creation is that the gods created the heavens and the earth in a physical world. Physical is bad. Physical is the result of wars and the dead bodies of defeated gods. And, 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 and the gods kind of create human beings to do the labor that they're too high for, that they're too good for. See, labor and physical work for ancient mythology was unimportant. It was demeaning. This has continued. In fact, later on in Greek philosophy, Socrates said, that the human body was a prison of the soul. And therefore, any menial labor, anything that produced sweat, was demeaning to the human being. That the highest form of existence was not doing common labor. The highest form of existence was being a philosopher. God says something different. God says, no, 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 no. Don't make other people more important than yourself. Don't make their work more important than your work because they make more money or they're higher up or they've got more space than you or a better car than you or a bigger position or title. Your work is sacred that, you, that God has given to you and that should be your perspective because you exist here not to make more money but to reflect more of his glory. And the more you have that perspective that your work is important, that your work is sacred then you can have peace, even if you're not always smiling. Think about it. Jesus came into the flesh. God became a human being, John 1. The Word of God dwelt in the flesh and dwelt with us. And what did he do for the first 30 years of his life? What did God in the flesh do? Did he sit around in the synagogue and say, I'm going to philosophize until I'm 30 and begin my ministry? He was a carpenter. God was a carpenter. That's what he did. And when you go over there into Israel, right close to where Nazareth was, you can walk over a couple of hills, and there's this, there's this city called Sepphoris there that Herod built around the time that Jesus would have been a young adult, and he hired all the local carpenters to come and to build the theater and to build all of his buildings. And when you walk through there, you see timeless works of construction that construction workers of that time worked on. And I bet you one of those bricks was laid by God. I bet you the very theater where they did plays for Herod, that was built by God. All work is sacred. You know, I, in our culture, we're told that our value and our identity is found in what other people think about our job. We're told that our value and our identity shouldn't be high unless we have a certain level of respect. It's not true. You're valuable because you're created in the image of God. You're valued because God made you. And while you can't have pleasure in all your work, you can have peace if you have the right perspective. I mean, I, was, I tell you what, yesterday, I did common work. I did non-pastoral spiritual work. 
I know it's shocking to you. I'm sure you think I just sit off in a corner and let angels flutter in my room. But yesterday, do you know what I was doing? I was shoveling snow. And I hated it. Even though it was easy, it's the fluffy, light stuff. It's not even the heavy, hard stuff. You could do... Yesterday, shoveling was one-handed, right? I mean, here's what I was doing. I was going... And I get there. There you go. See, I'm doing good work. And then I go down like this. And the whole time, I was like, this is horrible, right? And God was like, are you kidding Are you serious? You're going to complain? I didn't even give you thick, heavy, wet stuff. And it occurred to me, God has shoveled before. I wasn't doing something that God has never done. God has shoveled. Yesterday, after I shoveled, then I had to fix the bathroom sink. Now, anybody who knows me, my wife and children, knows that is dangerous. I was underneath the sink for three hours pulling off tubes and everything like that. And there was a moment when I was tempted to grumble, start ordering around my children, get me a Coke. (laughs) But I realized that God himself has bent over. In fact, God has been pained for me before. God the carpenter came to do labor to restore me. Oh, see, all work is sacred. You're more significant than you thought. And you know what? When you get to heaven and God causes you to look back on your life, you're going to see stuff in the ordinary things that you did that was more spectacular than all the things that you're so impressed with, with celebrities and movie stars and rock stars and all of the other pictures of so-called success. You're going to look back on your ordinary life and the sacred work God gave you, and you're going to see a significance that is beyond your imagination, that blows your mind. Perspective, perspective, perspective. Work is sacred. Now, Genesis, though, helps us in peace, not just with our perspective, but our pursuit. And what Genesis tells us to do is not only have the correct perspective, but to have the correct pursuit and to understand that we have to pursue work as our calling in the life and that there's special work for us to pursue as calling. And so I'm calling, I'm moving from perspective to pursuit. And what I want you to do is grab your Bibles, go to Genesis 2, and I want to jump down over all those rivers and the gold and all that. And I want to read verse 15, which is an absolutely exquisite verse in Scripture. So exquisite, verse 15. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. To work it and keep it. Everybody say, work it. Ah. Now, I stumbled upon this truth that literally when I found it, I almost raptured out of my office and went straight to heaven without making it to church today, right? And you're like, my goodness, that sounds so dramatic. Whatever did you find, Pastor Josh? Thank you for asking. The Hebrew word, which I know is so interesting to you, the Hebrew word used for work and applied to Adam in verse 15 is a different Hebrew word than is used for God in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2. Now, in our English Bibles, obviously, we cannot see this difference, but in the Hebrew, it is there, and it is on purpose. The Hebrew word for work that's used for Adam is a specialized work. In fact, it's more of a spiritual work, or I'll put it to you like this. The only time this word is used in the Bible is for priest and high priest in the tabernacle or in the temple. Very special stuff. Very holy stuff. Temple stuff, worship stuff. We might even say religious stuff. And I think that's interesting because we expect that word to be used for God up in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2. And we expect the word that Moses uses for God to be used for Adam down in verse 15. But it's switched. And here's why. The reason why is because what God is saying and what Moses is saying, all work is sacred. If you're digging ditches, sacred. If you're laying brick, sacred. If you're putting in AC units into homes, sacred. If you're a lawyer, Not so sacred, but 
I'm joking. My dad's a lawyer. I can joke about him. All right? Uh, if you're a politician, all sacred except for in Illinois. You go to prison there. But, but when he changes to Adam and he says, God took Adam and he put him in the garden to work it, special work, what Moses is saying, all work is sacred, but God has a very specific work for you to do on earth. You have a calling. If you are here and you are a breathing human being made in the image and likeness of God, God has a calling for you that might be different for, from Bob, who's a fireman down the street, or George, who's an engineer at CAT. It might be completely different than Sally, who's a teacher. It might be different than Sherry, who's at home raising the children. It might be completely different for you than it is them. But God has defined what that is. He has a very specific call for you. He has called you by name. He has redeemed you. And he's put you on planet Earth to do something. Now listen. I'm not saying that you're going to have peace only when you find that specific calling. But I am saying you can have peace in pursuing God's call for your life. You have a garden. You have a priestly work to do in this world. Every believer in particular is a priest. And every human being has a calling on their life from God. This is so unique. You see, see, here's the deal. I'm going to tell you a secret. There's no more anointing. I have no more of the Holy Spirit than you do. You realize that? Just because I preach. Just because I say Jesus all the time does not mean I'm more special than you or have more of a measure of the Spirit of God than you. It's just I have a different task than you. Everybody has a calling, and everybody is to be a priest in this world in one way or the other. And you know what? We need priests in the police department, don't we? Don't we? We need priests in politics. We need priests in law. We need priests in art. We need priests who make secular music, not just Jesus music. We need priests who are CEOs and, and building uh, 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 makers. And, and we need priests who are, in, oh, we need priests in our public education system, don't we? And we need priests who stay home and raise the children. We need priests everywhere. Because God means not only to claim the religious world for himself, God means to claim every nation, every piece of grass for his own glory. No category is left outside of the pursuit of God, and you exist in this world to pursue your calling, so you've got to pursue it. Now, you say, oh, but how do I pursue it? I mean, do I have any help? Does Genesis help me out in knowing how to pursue my calling? And it does. Listen, Pursuit, work as a calling, number one, under that point, the first thing you need to do is look in. You say, what's my calling? What has God put me on planet Earth to do? And what you need to do regularly is look in. This is Genesis theology. This is, this is mosaic theological teaching. Moses is constantly telling them and reminding them to look in and to realize that they are made in the image of God. And what that means is that you are uniquely, fearfully, wonderfully made. And the reason why you have the certain bents that you have is because God made you that way. Now, i got to be careful here because you understand because of original sin, some of the bents in our life are unnatural and not good. Some of us have a bent to drink too much alcohol or a bent to, and we look in and we go, wow, I really like this thing out of proportion to what we should because of sin. However, that being said, we are still gloriously made in the image of God, and if we are honest and we look in, we can find some wonderful angles to our life, passions, desires, personality traits. You all know I talk too much, right? That's a trait. So when I looked in and I said, I love to talk in front of a lot of people, I went, I should be a preacher. <laughs> you know I mean? Now, Sherry, I tell you, she won't say five words to you, but the five words she says to you will be the best words you'll ever hear, Right? And, you know, now, when Sherry and I are by ourselves, she, I can't get a word in edgewise, but she's different. We're opposites. You're different. Not all of you are called to be outgoing and be able to witness to everybody in the name of Jesus, but some of you are. 
You see, you got to look in and be honest about how did God make me, uniquely make me? What do you like to do? What is your passion? And once you look in and you begin to kind of discern and pursue that and, and ask God to help you understand who you are, you can then look out. And one of the things that we're going to see next week, next week we're going to talk about marriage. You're going to love it. Anyways, uh, but uh, we're, uh, what happens is, is God puts him and takes him and puts him in that garden. And then God gives him all these things to look at and evaluate and divide. And he gets to name the giraffes and the zoos. And there's these needs that need to be done in the garden. Like animals need a name so that we have in the science books, you know, what, you know it's a zebra. You know, uh, and so God says, not only look in, but look out to needs, because the reason why you have passions and bents is to meet needs in the world. Your greatest passion and the world's greatest need, wherever those things kind of intersect, that's your calling in life. Maybe you like to teach. You like the idea of forming and dividing and, 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 and taking kids and helping them learn stuff. Well, there's your calling. Or maybe you like separating bad guys from good guys. Maybe you're a policeman. Or maybe you like separating, you know, fires from buildings. You're a fireman. You you ask God, what am I passionate about and where's their need? And how can I go meet that need using my skill, using my talents, my calling? But here's the final thing, and this is the most important thing. I say this lastly, but not leastly under these subpoints. Not only look in and look out, but pursue your calling by looking up. You have to look up. God hasn't called anybody in this world that doesn't require a relationship with God and a daily relationship, prayer. There's nothing God's going to give you without the need for you to at some point in time get on your knees and ask him for wisdom. There's nothing. You're not going to discover your calling on accident but in relationship with God. Look at Genesis 2 and verse 15. I know I'm reading this again, but it's so good. It's worth it. It's, it's like getting another order of French fries or something. That's really good. You just got to keep eating it. Genesis 2 verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man. And put, I love, he doesn't, he doesn't like, hey, Adam, uh... Is it cool with you if you go to the garden? Because I was thinking maybe I'll take you to the, you know. If you want to, I want to invite you to the garden. He's like, come here, Adam. And he grabs him and he takes him and he puts him there. Right? Now, the important thing is it says the Lord God. Now, in chapter 1, the name that's used for God is just God. Elohim. General, universal name for God. He is the Elohim over all humanity, not just one race, over all genders, not just one gender, over all geographical areas, not just one particular geographic. There's no competing God against this Elohim. He is the universal, transcendent, almost unapproachable God. But then in verse 15, and all through chapter 2, his name changes to the Lord God, like Yahweh Elohim. The reason why that's important is because Yahweh is the name for God's relationship covenant name. It's kind of like you've got my wife Sherry, and you can call her Sherry because that's her general name for everybody else, but I call her Mrs. King. She's keeping you up, right? I call her wife. I call her hot, okay? You can't do that. And the reason why is because I'm in relationship with Sherry. Now, anytime you're reading your Bibles and it says Lord, capital L-O-R-D, that is his relationship name that his people who are in relationship with him call him. God comes into relationship with Adam, and it's in relationship to Adam that Adam begins to be taken by God and to be led by God and to be placed by God. You have to ask yourself a question. I really want to know what my purpose is on the world. But are you willing to be taken by God? (laughs) Are you willing to be taken? Because if there's something in you like, well, I like the God thing, and he's kind of like over here, and that's really neat, and that's important, but I just want to do something that's fulfilling. I want to fulfill my potential. Well, here's the truth of the matter is, while God might call you to something you have a bent towards and to meet a need, typically your calling in this world will not 
It will not be according to your potential. In fact, usually God calls you to do things that you don't have the capability to do. And the only way to discover that thing and to do that thing is to be somebody who says, I am taken by God. And you've got to have fellowship with God, and you've got to surrender to God. And you've got to bring God your empty hands and say, God, I need you to fill these empty hands. You need to say, God, I am jacked up without you. Be my stronghold. Take a hold of my life. Because if you don't do it, if you don't take me, if you don't lead me, I'm not going to make it. I won't be able to do it. You know, God's not asking you. God didn't like, well, form a piece of mud, spit in it. And throw you, you know, and you're the piece of mud, and then like form you and make you so good looking. And then throw you on the earth and say, I hope it works out. I'll be watching. God comes and he, he holds us and he takes us and he's our stronghold and, and he leads us along. And, and it's not a question of if he's around or not. The question is, are we willing to turn around and see him there? And to say, I'm going to make God a priority of my life. I'm going to look up. And from looking up, I'm going to gain wisdom and be led in my life. That's how you pursue your calling in your life. You'll be given wisdom, insight. You'll have moments of epiphany. Sometimes he'll be silent and quiet, but he'll give you the comfort of his presence. Other times he'll speak so loud that it won't even be audible. It'll be in your dreams. It'll be in the word. You'll you'll hear it in sermons. You'll hear his voice constantly leading you along, taking a hold of you. But you've got to look up. You've got to look up. You've got to look up. That's how you pursue your calling. Look in. Look out and look up. And if you want God-glorifying, soul-satisfying peace in your daily task, then always be in pursuit of your calling. Always have perspective. All work is sacred. Always have the pursuit. Work is calling. And then the final thing you need to have God-glorifying, soul-satisfying peace in your work is you need to rest from work. Got to rest. You want to have peace in your daily task? You need one day you're resting. You've got to take a break. Central Illinois, you are the hardest working people I have ever been around. I am from Oklahoma. We are lazy. All right? We grow mullets, and we have sunburns, and we noodle, and we wish we had a NASCAR, and we wear tank tops with big beer bellies, and we have super gulps and trucks that are way too big with wheels too big, and we don't like to work. But here, you're wonderful, hardworking people, and you've got to hear me. You've got to take a day off. Now, listen. Watch this. Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. So God blessed the seventh day. In, order, in other words, it's not just for him. I mean, if he blesses something, that means he's making it a blessing not only to him, but to everybody who experiences it. God's blessed the seventh day. It will bless you to take the seventh day off, to have a Sabbath, to have a day off out of seven to rest. Now, the world won't say it'll bless you. The world doesn't say a day off is a blessing. The world says time is money, baby. We got bottom line. All right, you can't be wasting time. Don't be laying around. What are you doing, man? There's some food to go get. There's some houses to go get. There's cars to go get. There's stuff out there. There's, as we used to say in sales, there's money on the table. That's the world. And the world looks at people who believe in a day off, like literally, I'm going to take a day. I will not have a big to-do list. I won't be a busybody. I'm going to rest. The world looks at this and it says, this is silly. It's crazy talk. It's not efficient. It's not effective. It's not pragmatic. But God says it's a blessing. And all the six days he says it's good. But the seventh day he says this, now this here is a blessing. And if you want peace, you got to have this day. So he blesses this seventh day. Look at verse 3 again. And he made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Obviously, I don't need to tell you that when it says God rested, it doesn't mean he had fatigued. Both the word and the number seven point to completion. It just means he was done with this task. 
If his one job was to create the heavens and the earth and all the universe, on the seventh day it was done and he sat down in repose, glorious, wonderful, majestic, and begins to sustain and to enjoy what he has created. However, when Moses says in verse 3 that he makes it holy, he is making a foreshadowing reference to the Ten Commandments, because Moses, obviously, also talked about the Ten Commandments, and he roots the fourth commandment of taking a Sabbath day off in creation. In fact, in particular, just for our own benefit, uh, you don't get often a chance to hear the Ten Commandments in church, and so I want to take advantage of this here, but Deuteronomy 5, which is where you can find the Ten Commandments, and the fourth commandment, my girls always know that the fourth commandment is the, is the Sabbath commandment to take a day off because the thumb rests when you hold up the number four. See that? Out of the Ten Commandments, you'll always remember now, the fourth commandment is take the Sabbath day off. And it says here, Deuteronomy 5, verse 12, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. Now, this is wonderful because Moses is saying in the very Ten Commandments that we need to take a day off. God rested on the seventh day because it was completed. We need to take a day off because we need to physically and practically rest from work. If you don't rest from work, you can't have peace in your work. And we see this here because he brings up the ox and the donkey. Everybody say donkey. These donkeys were getting on an edge. You know, I'm a donkey on the edge. Right? Why were the donkeys on the edge? I'll tell you, because they were being worked too hard by their masters, and donkeys need to rest. My girls love this commandment, because they're like, we don't have any donkeys, but if we did, they'd get a day off. Maybe we should give our dog a day off. Maybe our cat. And I'm like, maybe the beige minivan. Like, permanent retirement off. Like, let's just retire it forever, right? You got to make your car rest. Your animals rest, your pet rest. But here's the point. The Bible is very practical. And the Bible says you physically need to restore your body. Six days work on creation. Six days work on the garden. Order it, form it, feel it. Work really hard. Work eight hours, ten hours a day. But the seventh day you need to let creation work on you. You need to let your body restore itself. And not only that, but God tells us to take a day off during the week so that not only will creation restore us, but we can enjoy the creation. We can walk around. We can smell the roses, as it were. We can enjoy the garden. We can enjoy what we've worked so hard to order in our life. We can enjoy the people and the moments and the insights because, listen, life is not about things. Life is about moments with God and with creation and having insights, not stuff. We have to rest and enjoy. You know, you need to get together with friends. You need to get together with your wives and your husbands and go out on dates. You need to play with your children. You need to get together, have a fine, awesome glass of Coca-Cola Classic. Fellowship and enjoy and take in. You can't have peace even in the stuff you love to do all week long if you don't take a break. And the Bible doesn't tell us. I mean, we know that Saturday was the Sabbath uh, because that was the official day. We know that. But we know by Jesus and his new covenant and his new wine and the new wineskins and all his Sabbath controversies, we know now we have a a perpetual rest. and, And we can choose what day we need. It might be Sunday. Maybe your day of rest is come to church and go and just, but maybe you have to work on Sundays. So choose Tuesday, your day off as your Sabbath, and really rest. But you you got to stop running around all the time. I got to go, I got to go, I got to go, I got 10 things to do. I gotta. And you're, kind of, you're dragging everybody behind you. Ah, and everybody looks at you and goes, I am exhausted just watching them. Do they ever stop? And you know what? It exhausts you too. 
Because even when you start doing the stuff you like, you're so tired. Even when you're doing stuff that you should love and people should look at you doing that and they should see you just, just relish in it, they don't see you relishing in it because you're so tired. You said, but if I took this literally, I mean, if I really took this literally, I wouldn't make as much money. Then make less money. Your life is not dependent upon what you have or how much money. Your life is dependent upon enjoying God and glorifying Him. Practical rest. You've got to rest from work. But here's the most important rest you could have. is not practical. But you've got to have spiritual rest. This is real peace for your peace. And it's very interesting because Moses, when he goes on to talk about this, he goes on to talk about this fourth commandment. And he says, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. In other words, you need a day to stop and remember God has set you free. You're no longer a slave. You're no longer in bondage. You're no longer, you still sometimes have a slave mentality and you're having a hard time not being institutionalized in that past of yours. You're having a hard time forgetting what the taskmaster said, that you were worthless, that you weren't, you weren't worth anything and that you were going to do labor for them because they were too good for the labor. And, and God came through Moses and, and he set you free from Egypt and he took you out and delivered you from that bondage and from that taskmaster. And God is saying to the Israelites, you've got to take a day off from your crops and your work so you can remember and rejoice. I was once a slave, but now I'm not. I was once blind, but now I see. I was once lost, but now I've been found. But the New Testament says, That a greater than Moses has come. A new and great deliverer. The ultimate deliverer who is Jesus Christ. And he came not to give us physical deliverance from Egypt, but spiritual deliverance from Egypt. And that's why Jesus was constantly in controversy and in conflict with the Pharisees. Because what Jesus would constantly do is he would work on the Sabbath. Y'all know this? Y'all know this, right? And what he would do is he would just absolutely upset the Pharisees because on the Sabbath day, he would heal people. On the Sabbath day, he would do things you weren't supposed to do. He would work. And in John chapter 5, he says something to them, and I just, I love it. Everybody say, he loves it. Oh, I love it when Jesus gets the Pharisees upset. It's so wonderful. Isn't it, Isaac? I just love it. And he looks at those Pharisees and they're like, how dare you heal people? You are breaking religious code. You are breaking tradition. You're not being like a rabbi should be. You're not talking like a rabbi should be. You're not drinking like a rabbi should drink. You're not eating like a rabbi should eat. Jesus looks at him. He didn't have to wipe his nose because his nose didn't run. But he said, my father is working. And I am working even now. And that really upset him because he was absolutely being offensive to the Sabbath law. Doesn't he know that Moses said that God created the heavens and the earth and rested on the seventh day? And there's no evening and there's no morning and that's perpetual rest. And God doesn't work anymore. And he's calling himself God. And he's working on the Sabbath. And the reason why that's so is because when sin came into our hearts and created restlessness in our souls because we were separated from God and when we chased all those idols of money and prestige, when we chose all those functional saviors that can't save us or give us happiness or peace, God got up off his throne and he went to work. And he went to work not for the first creation but the second creation. Not the old creation, but the new creation. And Jesus came into this world, and he said, I'm working, I'm working, I'm working. And then when he dies and pays the penalty and delivers us from the power of sin, what does he say on the cross? It 
is finished. Which is the same word that Moses uses in Genesis 2 for the first creation. Jesus was saying, I've come to make a new creation, which is people who are delivered and have peace with God and peace from God. And now that I've died for their sins, my work here is done. And as Augustine points out so aptly, so simply, on the Saturday Sabbath of the Jews, where was Jesus? Sleeping in the tomb. Resting from his second creation. And God comes to us and he says, you, you want rest in your daily task? You've got to get rest in your hearts. You want rest in your work? You've got to get peace with God. Because if you don't have peace with God, if you, if you don't have both practical rest and spiritual rest, then you're going to go to work and try to earn your salvation. You're going to try to justify your existence in the presence of man and God by what you do and what you have. And God says you can't have peace by working. The only way you can have peace is for me to work for you and to give you rest. You need soul rest. So we're instructed as a church and as followers of Jesus in Hebrews 4, verses 9 through 11. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. You see what it says there in verse 10? When it says... Whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works. The whole context is spiritual. You you can't rest in your work unless you have spiritual rest in your heart. And Jesus came to give you that rest. He says, I came to work for you so that you can rest in me. And when you are spiritually rested and you go back to your job tomorrow, you're a better person. You got way more resources to handle. When you have to deal with the enemy at work, with confrontation but in love, you're going to have a lot more resources to deal with that because your whole existence doesn't, doesn't, doesn't depend on how that person acts. When you're a mom at home and you're changing that diaper and you could be making more money than your husband, but that's where God's called you, you can have peace when you have rest. So you're able to clean those diapers and raise those babies. See? Let me tell you something about my wife. My wife could make a lot more money than me. Of course, you guys already knew that. But you see, our identity is so unlike American culture. We're not supposed to be like that. And then if God calls us to go build a company with a rested soul, man, that's going to be an awesome company. If he calls us to go make a great living but with a rested soul, then we'll be content We need rest. So remember to work heartily as to the Lord. And remember the teaching of the seventh day of creation. And you can have God-glorifying, soul-satisfying peace in your daily task and in your work. You just need perspective. All work is sacred. You need pursuit. Always continue to pursue your call in life. And you need peace for your peace, which is rest. You've got to rest from your work practically and spiritually. Let's, let's pray. God, I thank you for creation, that we live in a world and in, on an earth that's good and to be enjoyed. And uh, I just pray that you would help us to enjoy it and take it in and let it heal us and restore us. But God, I really thank you for the recreation, the new creation of my salvation, the fact that by virtue of my union with Christ, I am a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. And help me to find contentment and peace in that rest. The rest of the cross and the tomb. The rest and the victory of resurrection. Help that to be applied to my soul so that when I have to go to my task tomorrow, when I'm shoveling snow, when I'm, 
when I'm helping the children read their books, do their homework, when I'm loving my wife, when I'm going about deciding what my day is going to be like and what my attitude is going to be, may that rest really guide me. I just want to invite you, do you know Jesus Christ? Have you become a believer? What we've been saying today is that the whole Bible sets up the idea that Jesus came into the world to give us what we lost in the first creation. Adam and Eve sinned, and so did we. And Jesus came to set us free to finish the work of our forgiveness and our ability to be reconciled to God. Are you reconciled to God? Have you said yes to Christ? Have you crossed the line of faith? It takes grace to be there. But all it is is simple belief, an empty hand and saying, God, I'm more sinful than I thought, but I'm more loved than I ever dared dream. I receive your love through Jesus. I'm going to open up the front here, and I'm going to invite you, if you want to accept Jesus, to come down, and I will pray with you happily. I will rejoice with you because God is speaking to your heart. Just ask me, just say, help me to pray and to receive Christ. For the rest of you, you might be a believer, but you're restless. You have a restless spirit, a restless soul. You can't ever seem to be satisfied. Maybe you need to come forward and pray and, and give your needs. Or maybe you've got something else you need to pray about, health issues or financial issues or relationship issues. Man, if, if there's that many needs here, let's bring that many needs up front and let's get before God. Let's be taken by him. Let's be taken and put back in our garden, healed. Let us be taken by God and put back into our garden, rested from being touched by him. So I'm going to open up the front. Somebody will come around and ask you if they, if they can pray with you. If you don't want them to pray, that's fine. Just tell them no, and we'll be sensitive to you. I'm going to be the first one down. You can pray in the front pew. You can pray here at the steps. But let's do our business with God. And make sure we're rested in our soul with him. Amen.